0: Amen. All right. Tonight, I wasn't sure what we were going to cover yet, because at noon, when Lee had to go take care of business, he's like, you're going to have to teach. You have to find something. He says, teach whatever you want. You never tell a minister to teach whatever you want. You know how confusing it is (laughs) to do that on the fly? So I was kind of going through my notes and lessons I've taught in other places and, and different occasions, and I found one that would easily merge into our study of Job. And we're going to kind of go over this tonight. But we want to look at the theological implications of Job's faith through his entire ordeal and, and why that's important. We remember from the first couple chapters of Job what the book of a Job is is really about. And I just talked like Dalton for a minute there and I said, a Job. Um, but we... We read what the book of Job and the story is really about. It's less about Job and more about God's deal with Satan. That Job is not righteous only because of his blessing and goodness, but that Job is righteous because of Job's integrity. That Job is actually a righteous person. And that is the framework for which we view the rest of Job through. And how Job clings to his integrity and how Job clings to his faith even through the poor counsel he's received from his friends who are all focusing on the wrong thing because they're forcing guilt upon Job that's not there. They're forcing opinions of Job upon Job that are not true. They're saying, you have to have sinned, Job. You have to have done something wrong because that's the only explanation. And that's not the case at all. There's another bigger side story going on here that's really the cause for what's happening. And Satan was allowed to put Job through all of these things as a way for God to demonstrate to Satan just how righteous Job was and the reason for that righteousness. So really God is defending His own nature and his relationship with Job through this entire story. It's it's not anthropocentric in that it centers around Job. It's theocentric in that it centers around God and his glory and the relationship he has with Job. Now, one thing we have to make very clear is that Job's righteousness through the whole story has to be upheld. There's no point in time where Job can actually be considered a true account if Job was not righteous. Now, another thing we have to be certain of is that righteousness does not mean sinless. It's a very important concept that we have to understand, and that's seen through biblical accounts, not even here, but elsewhere in the Bible too. Righteousness does not equate to sinlessness. If that's the case, then the only righteous one, truly righteous, is Christ. And we know that that's true. But we get our righteousness from somewhere else. So I'm going to throw this question out here first of all. According to biblical theology, where does righteousness come from? (laughs) What was that? From God? Okay. How are we made righteous according to the Bible? Obedience to the gospel? Uh, In a way, yeah. In a way, yeah. If we go through the book of Romans, we'll see that what made Abraham righteous? Was it his adherence and obedience to the law? Or was it faith? It was faith, right? Now, we understand that faith automatically is an obedient faith, and we're going to get into that here in a minute. But we have to understand that what made Job righteous was his never compromising faith in God. He questions God, yes, but he never forsakes the integrity of his faith that God is up to something. He never really really has an argument against his faith in God. He questions to the point where he wants almost this courtroom session with God where he can question God, and he kind of drags God down to his level, and that's the sin that we see that he did, but his faith in God never really wavered. Excuse me. Um, And so with that, as a critical factor in Job, I want to look at what, this biblical faith looks like. And we're going to use Hebrews chapter 11 to define that. And a lot of times you ask people, what is the definition of faith? And a lot of people will quote Hebrews 11.1. 1. But when you go and read Hebrews 11.1, 1, it's kind of foggy. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense the first time we read it. So uh, if somebody wants to read Hebrews 11.1, 1, go ahead. Okay, so faith is the evidence or the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. What exactly does that mean? Does anybody have a way of making that more clear for us to understand? Yeah, so there's a certain amount of inference that it kind of fills in the gap for, and there's also implication that it fills in the gap for that you know logically has to be true. Uh, If we look at faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we'll notice a few things. One thing that faith is, is it's confident proof of what we hope for, even if it's not seen. Two things that faith does in Hebrews 11 is it demands compliance and it excludes complacency. Let me say that again. It demands compliance and it excludes complacency. And that, that's an application of how faith is actually lived out. You know, you read the intro to the book of Romans, and the entire basis upon the faith that, talks, that Paul talks about in the entire book is predicated on when he says uh, faith that leads to obedience in the first chapter. Obedient faith. Faith has no room for complacency in our lives. Once we are confident in our faith, we have to act upon that. That's not arguable in Scripture. Three things that faith brings is righteousness, glory, and confidence. And we'll see that throughout the rest of this study, too. And when you look at the words that the writer of Hebrews uses to describe faith here, we see the first word that describes it, and that's evidence or assurance. Now, looking at this word in Greek is really weird because it has two different meanings. There's a primary and a secondary meaning to this word, but they both apply to the definition of faith. And you say, well, how is that possible? One is an abstract meaning in the Greek language, and one is a literal concrete meaning. And both of them apply. That's why we have different translations that read different things for here. Uh, Some translations, like the King James and the New King James, will read, faith is the substance of things hoped for. This tends to fall upon the translation of that word to be the literal concrete translation of that word, which substance means a literal reality. It's the reality of what we hope for. The Christian Standard Bible actually translates that word as reality. Faith is the reality of what we hope for. Then we have the abstract meaning of the word, which is how a lot of our other translations will translate it. The New American Standard, the ESV, a lot of the other translations that kind of go off of a Westcott-Hort tradition will Translate that as more of an abstract meaning, which means the assurance or confidence. Now, why do I say all this if it doesn't have a bigger purpose? Faith and its definition is defined by how word, the word is translated. Is faith a literal substance and a literal, literal reality, or is faith a confidence? What do you all think? Confidence. How about both at the same time? And we can do that. Now, not not all the time can we actually take both meanings of a word at the same time, but this is a rare instance where we can. Because it is a confidence, an assurance of the reality, the substance, the firmness of what we hope for. Right? It is a confidence and a firmness in this reality. And then we have to determine what the reality is that we're hoping in. And we see this through all the examples that we have in Hebrews 11, and we see this displayed in the life of Job as well. So we have faith as a confidence in the reality of something. And some things I want to use as an example for that come from the following rest of the examples that are in Hebrews chapter 11 here. First thing we need to understand is where faith comes from. Where does faith come from? how does faith emerge in our lives where where's the origin of that Lee looks like he wants to say something god. through god uh, yeah. that's really close to the exact answer i was looking for <laughs> yeah, Romans 10, 17 comes from the hearing of god's word hearing of god's word mhm yeah right So, faith comes by hearing, hearing specifically the word of God. So, the hearing of the word of God produces a knowledge of God, right? What does the knowledge of God produce? Faith. And then, if we look at how this is applied in the context of Hebrews 11, we get to verse 7. And what does verse 7 say? What motivated Noah? Okay, so Noah, by faith, did what he did because he was motivated by what? Fear. Is this fear terror, or is this fear something else? Absolutely right. The fear he has, I, I think of it this way. When I was four, I feared my parents. Was that to the point of maturity where it was a respectful fear, or was it the fear of being spanked? Fear of being spanked. I was terrified of punishment, right? But as I matured, as I grew to love my parents in a more mature way, what did that fear turn into? Respect. I'm more afraid now of disappointing my mom and my dad than I am of punishment. I'm more afraid of what it means to let them down, and furthermore, let them down because it lets my heavenly father down as well. And that is the fear that it matured into. When we read about the fear of God in this way, this is what it's talking about. The reverential fear and respect for God that we live our lives in such a way that it lives in accordance with our fear of dishonoring our Father. So we get faith by hearing the Word, and the Word reveals knowledge of God. And when we have the knowledge of God, that produces a healthy fear of God. And why is this important? Because how can we have faith in a God that we don't think is powerful enough to fear? How can we have faith in a God that is not powerful, mighty, and sovereign enough to have that kind of respect for? Faith cannot exist in something that we cannot have faith in. God's power and his might and his holiness has to be the motivating factor for our faith. And that is what we hang our hat on. Because God's character is immutable which means unchanging, and that is the bedrock, unmovable foundation that we rest our faith upon. So faith, through the knowledge that we get of God from the word, rests upon our fear of God. I'm getting ahead of my notes here. In some small way, I would say yes, but it, it's the it's the difference I explained here about my fear of my parents. I was afraid of their punishment, but that matured into something deeper. While we're afraid of what God is capable of doing in His wrath, we should be afraid of that because Romans 1:18, God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says that God will by no means clear the guilty, and so there is a healthy fear of His wrath if we are in sin. But at the same time, if we know we're not in sin, as in the case of Job, our fear turns into respect of his power. Yes, sir. I think the maturity. When you mature enough to understand the difference, it grows in you. Right. And therefore the fear turns into a high regard for respect. Absolutely. 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 Yes. Once you get that you don't have to have a you know that in God's mirror mirror that you know Right. 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 Because of the grace that we have in Christ, according to Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25, that grace and redemption is in Christ, and when we are under that grace in Christ, we don't have to fear condemnation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We're free from that condemnation, so we're free to live righteously in our faith, right? Because faith brings righteousness. Life is this. It's not this. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and And what else does the Bible tell us? Perfect love does what? It casts out fear, right? And once we are in Christ, we are dwelling within the very presence of God's perfect love. Because God is love. So, for those who are in Christ, in Christ being the critical placement, for those who are in Christ, we don't have to have the terror of God. Yes, sir? I I was thinking this week today, but I Me too. I about worship <laughs> this week. Mm hmm. And the, and the act itself is holy and perfect, even if it's rendered by an imperfect person, because of who qualifies it, which is God. Um, now, three things that we are wanting to look at through our text in Hebrews here, and all of these can look back and we can see these played out in the life and the arguments and the things that Job said to his friends who were given him poor counsel. We can see all of these manifest in manifold ways in Job's life. When we look at these and we're going to look at these examples in Hebrews chapter 11, Um, the first reality that we have confidence in through faith is that we have faith in the reality of God's promises, faith in the reality of God's promises. Uh, Somebody read Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 and somebody read verse 13. Okay, in verse 13. These all died faith, not having received the but having seen and greeted from and having acknowledged that they were strangers Okay. I have these two because they relate. We see Cain is doing what? Or oh, not Cain, Abel, sorry. What is Abel doing in verse 4 through faith? Offering a pleasing sacrifice before God through faith, which makes him righteous, right? And he did not taste the promise of God because he was far off. He was far off from seeing the fulfillment of the promises of God that have been since the very first prophecy of the Messiah in Genesis chapter 3. He was far removed from that. But through faith and through his lifestyle and the sacrifices that he gave, the true worship that he gave, his faith in that promise and his obedience to it made him righteous. So he had a confidence in the reality of the promise of God that was coming, even though he didn't get to taste it. How much faith does it take for a person to follow God in a complete obedience, and in the case of Abel, it got him killed, knowing that you don't even get to immediately taste of the goodness of his riches? That's amazing to me. And we see how everybody pre Christ, before Christ, was doing the same sort of thing, where they were acting out of obedience to God, knowing, some of them, the, the truly faithful ones, had an awareness that they were doing this without being able to taste the, the fulfillment of his earthly coming as the Messiah. And we see that, that this had to have been the case for Job too. They did not not have a knowledge of the coming promises of the Messiah in Job's age. It was kind of muddled up in... Confused at times. It's clear through Israel's departures and faithlessness and continued repeated idolatry. And and the surrounding world religions of the time in ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamia often shed a lot of confusing light on their own religious landscape. And so they were not in a place where they were never confused about this, but they were never at a point since the time of Genesis 3 where they did not have a promise of God to look forward to. And one of the key things about faith in God. Faith that makes us righteous, faith that enables us to endure the hardships, faith that empowered Job is that Job had faith in the promises of God. If we want to roll this forward into our situation and speak directly into our lives, what promise of God do we have today? God, oh, salvation. salvation, right? When we look at what Christ did on the cross, we see from Romans chapter 3, verses 24, 25, and 26 that it acted as a propitiatory sacrifice. Verse 25 saying that God displayed him publicly as a propitiation for our sins. What does that mean? That means that he stood between the wrath of God and man, and he took the fullness of the wrath of God, because he's the only one that is capable of doing that, in order to absolve us of our sins. So that when we are in Christ, the justice of God that is demanded is applied to Christ on our account. We have salvation because of this. But not only that, we also stand within the righteousness of Christ. And that's a very important detail to take into account. Because if all it took for Jesus to completely save us was the cross, then there was no need for Jesus to live 33 years on the earth and have public ministry. Jesus' perfect life and Jesus' sinlessness and Jesus' perfect righteousness and perfect holiness and perfect unbrokenness because of sin provides a a perfect example of what God's righteousness looks like. He was the only one to have ever completely followed the law of God. Nobody was capable of perfectly living up to the standard of God's righteousness, and Christ was the only one that did that. Why is that important? Absolutely. Because then all of God's justice would be justly distributed to him as well as us. Yeah. If you look at it, so in the Old Testament, St. Paul says he lives faithfully under the Old Testament law. hmm But that's different than living perfectly. Yeah. Jesus lives perfectly, which yeah. means he does not need sacrifice, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Absolutely right. And because of his righteousness, that is why we cannot be only freed from the punishment of our sin, but it's also why we are free from the guilt of our sin. What the cross does is it takes away our punishment for sin, but the righteousness of Christ that we now have access to on our own account is why we are guiltless before God. That's why we don't have condemnation for our sins. Because when God looks at us and we're covered by the blood of the Lamb, he can look at us and say, You're my child. I have adopted you because of Christ. And he can look at us as if we've never sinned at all. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's why when you read Romans chapter 8, around the area of verses 17 and 18, somewhere in that area and following, that's why we have the right to cry out, Abba, Father. This does not mean that we have to call God Daddy, because that's what it literally means in Aramaic. That does not mean that. It means we have intimate access to relationship with the Father. That's what it means. And because of that, we can call God Father. Why? Because He's adopted us if we are in Christ. That's the promise of God we have to have faith in right now. So every child is born from Mm-hmm. Yeah, no illegitimate no, yeah, children yeah. from God. <laughs> right. Those out there who are doing all kinds of stuff and saying you say is all county. Mm-hmm. Yeah, i I've never actually thought of it that way as the church is the mother because I've always just, you know, yeah. ch- church is bride. <laughs> yeah. Um that's a, that's an interesting point though. Yeah. You know, God has no illegitimate children. Every everyone who is born again in Christ is an actual an fully inheritance-bound child that belongs to him in Romans chapter 8. So that's the promise that we have faith in as well. Now, back reaching back into Job's time, does Job's righteousness afford him access to the inheritance that we have? It doesn't? Right, and and faith, yeah. Uh, Right, well, what did the one-year thing do? Yeah, it, it pushed it forward to what time? Yeah, so Christ covers their sins. It's just the mode of receiving grace was different. Right. Absolutely. It's here as well. It begins here and extends into eternity, yeah. Um, but because of all of this, we see that Job has a firm foundation to believe in the promises of God for the richness of his salvation. He, he's not devoid of the concept of salvation. A lot of people like to think that they're theologically inept back in Job's time. That's not true at all they had some kind of concept of God's salvation from the present tribulation of sin and and flesh. Now, we are running short on time, so we're going to have to move through these next two points I have. Uh, So moving on, not only do we have faith in God's promises, we have faith in God's providence. Uh, By providence, we mean God's sovereignty over the situation of the world and the way that he provides for his people in and amongst the issues. We talked about at least when I gave the introduction before we watched the video, we talked about how in ancient Near Eastern religious culture, the symbol of Leviathan took the image of the dragon that they saw and they applied this concept of chaos onto it and how every single religious Pantheon of Gods has a story, an epic, of how their supreme God conquers the dragon of chaos and establishes a world order in politics and religion at the same time. And now what God is saying is he's coming at and attacking those world religions saying, look, I am the one who doesn't conquer Leviathan, I own Leviathan. These guys over here conquered him, whatever. I own him, I'm the one that made him. I don't have to conquer chaos. I control chaos. What God is communicating is his complete and absolute control over whatever chaos Job is going through. He's sending a message of providence. How Job should not question God because God is the one ultimately in control of everything that's happening. And Job had no right to incite God and bring God down to his level. He's saying, look, you have no power over the chaos, can you put Leviathan on a leash and walk him around for your girls? It's a paraphrase of what God actually tells him. No. <laughs> yes, sir. Philippians 2. Mm-hmm. Right. Right.-hmm: Right. And God is the only one who has a claim over control of the absolute chaos and evil in the world. That's not to say God does evil, but God allows evil for certain situations for a couple purposes. One is to promote His glory, and whatever evil God allows into the world, it is good that that evil exists so that his righteousness might be demonstrated. It's a very important point to make. Whatever God allows to happen in the world that is evil, it is good that it is allowed to exist for the purpose of his glory and the demonstration of his righteousness. And ultimately, that's what he's doing through Job here. Ultimately, that's the the main point. God is allowing Satan... Some, some license to create evil and chaos. He's still in control over it, still in subjection to him, but he's allowing it for the purpose of a demonstration of his glory and how he rescues his beloved and how his righteousness is demonstrated in the earth. So really God is making a claim to glory through the entire situation of Job's life. And we see how his providence transcends into the picture of Job's life regardless of what Job's friends are counseling him with. Uh, if we want to look at this, we need to kind of understand two important things about God's providence, because when I've talked to certain people, there's two hang-ups. They either don't believe that God can provide for them, or they believe that God can provide for them, but that he simply doesn't want to. And I, I get that a lot from people who are going through a difficult time. They say, well, I believe that God has the power to help. I believe that God has the power over the, the difficult times that we're going through, but I don't believe He will. And that's simply not true. Yes, sir. It's a gift. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You know, if you want to talk about the providence and grace of God, the very fact that we are not completely annihilated for the sake of our sin right now is the testimony to the mercy and riches of God's grace. Um, so in order for us to have faith in the providence of God, we need to understand that God, first of all, is fully capable of claiming victory over the chaos and the, the hurt in our lives. And that was the big point of Job, is God is in control of the chaos. He's in control of the misery and the hurt. And he's, he's in there with Job the whole time. He's not, never turned his back on Job. He's never left Job. He rather chooses to be with Job in the midst of the hurt as the one controlling it. And there's comfort in that when we think of it that way. There's comfort because we know God is still in control. And that God's working something out because of this for his glory. And why shouldn't we, as God's people, be willing to walk through the flames if it means God's name is made great? Why shouldn't we, as God's people, be willing to go through the trials of this life for the purpose of his glory? You know, we kind of get this idea where we're offended by the idea that God would ever have his people go through hard times sometimes. And that's, that's not true at all. God is always with us through the trials, but God uses our trials to bring about his glory. That too, yeah. Which is a grace in and of itself. If you you've got in the area. Right. But if you if you if it if you and if it shapes you makes you stronger, then that's that's fine. but all as you said earlier about the problems I look at it as a protection. Not that nothing's ever gonna happen to you. to God God got control it. It's he's sovereign over it, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely, I agree with that 100%. Um, And whatever hurt we're going through, ultimately, through our faith in the process, is going to go to God's glory. And God's glory is almost always seen through his goodness to his people. While we experience pain and suffering and evil here in this world, we know that through Christ in God, we have our ultimate good laying in wait for us if we continue to push through in faithfulness. And that in and of itself is a form of righteousness that faith brings, is the ability to push through, as James talks about in chapter 1. Yeah, he said, go ahead, do whatever you want. <laughs> right. Not a temptation. Yeah. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Make him lose his faith. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that's the big point. Is the, the point of departure for Job is not that he never sinned, but that he never gave up his faith. That's the biggest thing. Because through faith, even though we sin, through faith and obedience, and faith and obedience, we can overcome the sin because of the righteousness that's imputed to us. Yes, sir? Yeah, when he's talking to Thomas and John. Yeah, he says, it's more, it's more for us to have to see Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Forrest, you wanted to say something else? Absolutely, and I believe that the book of Job gives us a universal why that can be applied to any suffering we go through. We don't know maybe more specific reasons why, but there is an overarching reason why, and that's to bring God glory through our faithfulness. And that's, that's always the great why of suffering in our lives. And there may be more specific and tailored reasons to help us grow in our faith along the way, to help us produce more faith, as James talks about, but the overarching why is because God is great. And his greatness is seen through the faithfulness of his people. Uh, Last point, and we're going to wrap it up with this point because we're getting really short on time now. We've only got like eight minutes. Uh, We had two minutes? Negative two minutes? Okay. Then I'm just going to mention it in passing and we're just going to go home and think about it. (laughs) All right. So we have faith in God's uh, promises, faith in God's providence, and faith in God's plan. God's overall plan throughout history has always been the redemption of mankind from the brokenness of sin and the fallenness of men. That's always been his overarching plan, and that's to his credit and to his glory. Amen. But we also see that God had a specific plan in the case of Job, and that was to, as we just talked about, demonstrate his righteousness to Satan, defend his holiness before Satan, and to defend Job's righteousness, really, because that's also the secondary part of this. God is making a defense for Job's righteousness. He's saying that Job's firm. So, we, we have to see the bigger plan at work, which is the redemption of mankind. But we also have to see that God has a, a specific purpose because if He's sovereign, He has a purpose for whatever life situation we're in right now. We have to have faith in His plan. His plan is going to work, God's plans never fail. But we can't lose faith if we don't understand what the plan is. And that's the hard part. Uh-oh. I'll allow for one closing comment from y'all, and then I'm going to be done. Anybody have a comment? (laughs) Right. Yeah, faith, obedient faith, specifically, as Paul identifies in Romans 1. Arnold, you had your hand up real quick. Yeah. It's so easy to fall into this trap of negativity all the time. That's, that's one of the easiest things for human nature to do is to fall into the vacuum of negativity and focusing on the bad stuff only. But you've got to realize that there's a lot of good stuff too. And the good things oftentimes outweigh the bad things if we put it in the right perspective. And that's the reason why the early church was able to succeed in the face of the worst persecution ever because they saw not only the good times they had here because of the grace but the good times that are coming. They were able to see glory and, and have a taste of that glory here, and they push forward to that glory as Paul talks about in Rome, uh, not Romans, Philippians chapter three. All right, with that, um, I'll stop talking. Thank you for paying attention. Thank you for your comments, and it's been fun.